A member of Congress who thinks wearing a mask should be optional has tested positive for coronavirus. Some of the best sitcoms with black casts are finally coming to Netflix. And the hosts of Forgotten, The Women of Juarez, join us to discuss their podcast, which explores the disappearance of hundreds of women just across the border from the U.S. The date, July 29th, 2020. The time, news o'clock. Hey, everyone. I'm Hayes Brown. And I'm Casey Rackham. Welcome to News O'Clock. Okay, uh, I gotta say, I'm really excited for today because today is the day that George R.R. Martin is hopefully brought to justice. What? Okay. So, so here's a, so let me backtrack. Last year, Martin promised on his blog that if the sixth book in the Song of Ice and Fire series, uh, which is supposed to be titled The Winds of Winter, was not ready by the time he arrived at WorldCon Comic Con in New Zealand, that he gave full per- written permission for the fans to imprison him on an island in New Zealand until it's done. <gasps> and that date is today. It's today. So, World Con oh. started up in New Zealand today <laughs> and the book isn't here. So hopefully the people are about to storm George R.R. Martin's house and okay, hijack him he, to New Zealand. Is he in where? Yeah. Where does he currently live? You know what? I have no idea. I just always assumed like a cabin in the mountain somewhere. That's yeah. just my well, guess. If, if he's in New Zealand, I would be worried. But if he's not in New Zealand, I'm not worried because the rules seem clear. The rules are clear and that it's he has to be imprisoned in New Zealand and travel is not really happening. So that's true. Okay, time for today's top stories. Here's what you need to know. Things aren't going great on Capitol Hill today for several reasons. The foremost being that one of the most anti-mask members of Congress tested positive for coronavirus. Texas Representative Louis Gohmert attended a House Judiciary hearing yesterday where he was most definitely not wearing a mask when he was spotted talking to Attorney General Bill Barr. Gohmert told a local Texas TV station earlier today that he still thinks people should have a choice about masking up, saying, quote, if somebody feels strongly about everybody should wear a mask, then they shouldn't be around people that don't wear masks. But he added once a person tests positive, they should have to wear a mask and he will. Meanwhile, the odds of a coronavirus bill passing before the end of the week are not looking good, with the Senate GOP's proposal looking pretty dead in the water. The bill has been under attack, not just from Democrats, but from Republicans as well. Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri told Politico, quote, It's a mess. I can't figure out what this bill is about. I don't know what we're trying to accomplish with it. And the president yesterday said that the GOP's bill is, quote, sort of irrelevant because of the need to negotiate with Democrats. Extended unemployment benefits are due to expire on Friday if Congress does not pass a renewal. And as if that weren't enough, the U.S. hit 150,000 confirmed COVID-19 deaths today, which remains the highest on Earth. In other news, the Department of Homeland Security announced today that they'll be withdrawing federal forces from Portland after weeks of standoffs with protesters, eventually. Acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf said in a statement today that Oregon Governor Kate Brown and the DHS have come to a deal on how to protect federal property that DHS says is under attack. Under the terms of their agreement, forces from Customs and Border Patrol, the U.S. Marshals, and other agencies that have been facing off against protesters in Portland nightly will be pulled out of there as state and local forces take over protecting the federal courthouse there. But the odds of the protests immediately ending aren't exactly high, since Wolf says the federal forces at the courthouse in question will be replaced by, quote, a robust presence of Oregon State Police. 
And in the meantime, DHS and the Department of Justice are continuing to expand where Operation Legend, as the Enhanced Federal Law Enforcement Presence it's called, will be deployed. Just ahead of the Portland announcement, DOJ said that federal officers will be heading next to Milwaukee, Detroit, and Cleveland. And despite a Supreme Court ruling, the Trump administration says it's not putting DACA fully back into place. Earlier this month, the court ruled in a surprise twist that the Trump administration didn't properly consider the harm to recipients when it abruptly said in 2017 that it was ending the Deferred Action Against Childhood Arrivals program. But now the administration says it will not be restarting the program exactly as it was. Instead, a senior administration official told BuzzFeed News it will not be accepting any new applications while it conducts a review of the program. That leaves an estimated 66,000 undocumented immigrants who would have qualified in the lurch. DACA recipients who have already received their deportation protection and work permits will be able to renew their status, the official said, but only for one year. Renewals used to last for two years. Advocates and California's attorney general have already said that they're prepared to issue new legal challenges to get the program restored in full as the Supreme Court has ordered. And that's really what we need at this point is for it to be restored in full because anything else is just everyone's in limbo. And it truly is not a way to live or function wondering month after month or year after year what it's going to be. Yeah, the fact that it's been reduced so that you have to renew every year, that's a lot, especially the amount of paperwork that these DACA recipients have to put forward to show that, no, I've been working, I've been doing everything fully within the bounds of this program. To have to do that annually is asking so much of them. Also, going back to your first story today, just talking about the the bill passing. I mean, I'm getting more nervous day in and day out about what's going to happen. I mean, if both Republicans and Democrats aren't happy with what they have. And on top of that, I've been seeing on Twitter from some people I follow, uh, specifically in California, where they haven't been paid for their unemployment for the past six weeks. And they've been, I, I know someone, you know, have been calling like, tens of times a day and people won't give them their name saying we have higher priority people we're dealing with right now. And it just feels like a very big mess. Yeah. What the GOP wants the states to take over this program. Mm. It's they're already overwhelmed. I will say in a bit of levity. So uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer gave some really hilarious kind of quotes about where things are right now. And I just have to read them off really quickly. Please do. It's like a giraffe and a flamingo, Pelosi said to the room. They're both at a zoo. A dumb person may think they could mate for offspring. A smart person knows that's impossible. That's our bills. They're unable to mate. (laughs) Well, then. We are are truly in a zoo now, so it all makes sense to me. It's going great. Schumer's quote is is a bit better. He He compared them to a golden retriever can't mate with a chihuahua. You have a chihuahua. We have a beautiful lion. So... (gasps) That happened. I know. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's going great, Casey. Everything is going great. As (laughs) always. How are things on your end? Well, first up, TV shows are starting to film again around the country. Well, mostly reality and game shows, at least. Most production in the TV industry shut down back in March as the coronavirus lockdowns came into effect. But now production companies are slowly getting back in gear. For example, Bravo's Real Housewives franchise has already started back up again with two of their series currently filming in Atlanta and Orange County. According to TMZ, New Jersey is now joining them in getting back to work. Among the safety precautions that TMZ cited include everyone on set getting their temperature checked daily, encouraging social distancing, and filming a lot of scenes outdoors. The filming crew will have to wear masks, but it looks like it will be optional for the housewives themselves. 
And both Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy are preparing to start taping again with changes to their sets to allow for more distance between contestants. No word yet on if they'll still have a live studio audience, but I mean, it seems unlikely. The precautions being taken on Wheel and Jeopardy are made all the more important given the host's ages. Pat Sajak is 73, Vanna White is 63, and Alex Trebek, who's still battling pancreatic cancer, is 80. Wow. I... But yeah, I mean, I have uh, out here in LA, I know a lot of friends who work in production and yeah, they've been on set for new reality shows or pat or um, reality shows that have been on for the past couple of years. You know, productions are just trying to figure out how to function in this new this new world we have. And um, also, I just want to talk about um, Real Housewives real quickly. So yeah, they are filming in Orange County. They have been. One of their cast members tested positive as did her children. Wow. And and apparently they, they are still filming because this one housewife didn't go on a trip on the show with the other housewives, so, like, they weren't near her. So now she's just, she's supposedly, like, going to just be, like, recording herself on her iPhone in her home. But I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, there, she's gonna have a they, they get a coronavirus storyline. Holy cow. <laughs> wow. I mean, um, how how are they not gonna talk about it? But a lot of people are talking about it. Like, are on all these reality shows, are they going to talk about this thing that is affecting everyone? Like everyone's wondering about The Bachelor. Are they going to be like, oh, we can't kiss? Like, you know, like or make like weird jokes about it, you know? Yeah, right. So I'm curious and frightened to see where they go with this. And I just gotta point out really quickly the fact that they wearing masks will be potentially optional for the housewives mm-hmm. question mark big question mark on that one for me <laughs> okay but i do have some absolutely amazing news uh it's just so good after years of outcry netflix has announced today that a bunch of classic shows featuring black casts are coming in the next few months Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, so while the streaming rights for shows like Friends have been endlessly fought over, a lot of people have questioned why Black sitcoms haven't gotten the same interest or been available to stream at all. But starting next week, Netflix will be uploading a bunch of shows that aired on the now-defunct channel UPN. First up will be Moesha, starring Brandy, which will be available on August 1st. Moesha's spinoff show, The Parkers, starring Monique and Countess Vaughn, will be coming in September. And among the other fan favorites incoming include Sister Sister, starring Tia and Tamara Maori, and Girlfriends with Tracy Ellis Ross. All I can say to that is uh, Mo to the... <laughs> E to the, I'm so excited for this. I Exactly. It's been so long since I've seen like any of these shows that I am excited to go back and see like, okay, what were the plots on some of these shows? I don't remember so many much of what happened on like Moesha. Do I remember most of it? No. I remember Q showing up, but do I remember like any of the details? No. No, that's the thing. Like I, I remember most things from Sister Sister. I've like rewatched it a bunch, but you know, like Moesha, you know, was didn't have as many reruns, I think, as Sister Sister. And since it hasn't been on streaming it's like no these are basically gonna feel like brand new to me because they were from you know like preteen years of watching it but um i'm mostly just selfishly super excited for sister sister because boy did i have a crush on both tyreek and jordan oh <laughs> I, snap it was, for anyone who doesn't remember those were tia and tamara's boyfriends uh on the show and i never could decide which one i loved more so <laughs> oh my god uh wow no love for roger i see <laughs> I see how it is. <laughs> Not when Tyreek and Jordan are there. <laughs> okay, when we come back, we've got the host of the podcast, Forgotten, the Women of Juarez with us. Stay right there. At 
SheFit, we're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat-burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self-doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. Hi, I'm Robert Sex Reese, host of the Dr. Sex Reese Show. And every episode, I listen to people talk about their sex and intimacy issues. And yes, I despise every minute of it. I yeah. mean, she, she made mistakes too. Right? That's I mean, true. She, she did she, kill everyone at her wedding. But hell is real. We're all trapped here. And there's nothing any of us can do about it. So join me, won't you? Listen to the Dr. Sex Re Show every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello. Hey, I don't know if you heard, but my podcast, Checking It, has been nominated for the NAACP Image Award in the category of Outstanding Lifestyle and Self-Help Podcast. I'm grateful for the nomination. I, I almost didn't even do a podcast because I was just wondering, there are thousands of podcasts out there and why is my voice needed? But a nomination from the NAACP lets me know that um, I made the right choice. And I encourage you to do, don't worry if there are thousands of something out that you want to do. No, Nobody has your sauce. So listen, you can still vote. Go to vote.naacpimageawards.net. You have until February 5th, um, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And please listen to my podcast. We're a part of the Black Effect Podcast Network on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for checking in. Welcome back. In the Mexican city of Juarez, just across the border from El Paso, Texas, hundreds of women have gone missing since 1993. When they're found, if they are at all, they're dead, sometimes in mass graves with strange symbols carved on their bodies. Despite decades of investigations, we still don't know who is behind these crimes. Now, a new podcast is seeking to connect the dots. We are here today with the hosts of the podcast Forgotten, the Women of Juarez, Monica Ortiz Uribe and Oz Filoshin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. So you're both journalists, but you have very different connections to the story. When did each of you first learn about these murders? Well, um, I learned about it when I was a student at the University of Texas at El Paso. Um, from the library lawn of campus, you can look out and see some of the neighborhoods where the women lived. And, uh, and so I learned about the murders through um, an exhibition inside the library. And I remember stepping out, looking at these neighborhoods and thinking, my goodness, had it not been for my grandparents who had immigrated to the United States, I might have been one of these women. Um, I might have shared their fate. Um, but because of my grandparents' um, decision to move to the, to the U.S., I'm standing here at an institution of higher education with my whole life um, in front of me. And right then I felt an, an obligation to, to tell these women's stories. Oz, how about you? Well, I was very interested in the U.S.-Mexico border as a political flashpoint from the 2016 election onward and how it became this rhetorical hotspot for how we define us and them. So Juarez and El Paso are these sort of sister cities um, 
which I was always fascinated by, fascinated as well by the fact that the border patrol in El Paso is almost 80% Hispanic and has an extraordinarily high suicide rate. And so I was working on a documentary project about that. And while I was there, I learned this story about women on the other side of the border, many of whom who worked in American-owned factories, um, being murdered and turning up dead, and no one knowing what had happened to them. And, And as Monica said, many of those women lived within sight of the US. So I thought it was just a horrific and devastating story, but also one that really clarified how drawing a border or a line in the sand or putting a fence along the bank of a river can determine people's fates. Mm. And Monica, how did you two get together to decide to make this into a podcast? Well, it's funny. Oz uh, reached out to me and he couldn't have done so in a more perfect moment. Um, I was um, I was I was just coming off of a year of uh, graduate school and thinking that uh, I may need to step away from covering the border just for my own um, emotional well-being. And and so here here comes this uh, stranger um, with a funny accent um, <laughs> requesting me to to come back to the story that I had found the most challenging in my career, but also the story that I was most passionate about. And uh, and so I, after after some long and hard thinking um, and negotiation, um, <laughs> I decided to come on board. So you guys have been tackling a really big, complicated, ongoing situation with this show. What are the specific questions that you've been seeking to answer? Well, for me, I mean, coming back to that original trip to the border and, you know, how we define us and them and how it is that a city like El Paso, which has one of the highest concentrations of law enforcement of any city in the U.S., this, you know, city packed full of people who, at least in theory, uh, are are working to prevent crimes. And on the other side of a fence, you know, this killing field, uh, as Diana Washington Valdez called it. And these murders began in the early 1990s, long before Juarez became synonymous with cartel violence. And so whether it's buying goods from the factories in, in Juarez, or whether it's the enormous appetite for drugs in the US, many of which go through Juarez. We want to take what we can from Juarez at the same time as pretending we don't have any connection or responsibility to it. And that's the case, of course, with many of the US's relationships with other countries around the world. But it so happens that Juarez can be seen from the US. You can walk across a bridge there. And so it really, uh, for me, crystallizes so many of the uh, systematic and systemic problems that you know are coming to bear even at home more recently for me it was it was less about answering questions because i mostly understood the who and the why and the what behind the what is femicides um i had been thinking about and reporting on this subject for the last uh 15 years and for me it was more about explaining and exposing the larger dynamics behind the story. Uh, What was it that created the environment that allowed for these femicides to happen with such impunity? And 
I saw this series as an opportunity to discuss subjects that we're all grappling with under the pandemic in particular, um, topics like the power imbalance created by global capitalism, worker rights, violence against women, immigration, drug trafficking. And these are, these are subjects that aren't immediately apparent when you think about hundreds of murders of women in a Mexican border city. But these are things that I came to see over time, and I wanted to, again, use this series as an opportunity to make those connections and uh, especially help listeners in the U.S. see how they, they, they have a closer connection to these women than they expect. So femicide is a rampant problem across all of Latin America. What role does the idea of machismo play in these murders? Well, um, we tend to associate uh, machismo with Mexico or Latin America as a cultural phenomenon, when really um, machismo exists in every single country all along, all over the world in its own form. And so um, when women defy certain um, status quo expectations like leaving the home for the workplace or assuming uh, um being present in spaces they weren't previously, there's usually a backlash. Um, and that's part of what uh, what we see in in Juarez. Um, and that's certainly, and, and, it's, and in the U.S., we're no stranger to this kind of violence. Indigenous women in the United States and Canada are also suffering a similar pattern of disappearances and, and murders. You guys, you talk in the show about the role that the U.S. has played in these women's deaths in the podcast. You've mentioned U.S. factories and U.S. policies right now. Can you guys unpack that a little bit more? Are there a lot of direct connections that you've seen between U.S. policies straight to these murders? I think the short answer to that is yes. Um, you know, there are there are two major economic forces in Juarez, one of which is drug trafficking. And so after Miami became, you know, too hard for drug traffickers to, to traffic through for various reasons, Juarez became the, you know, the global center of cocaine trafficking into the U.S. And so, you know, while you have demand for cocaine on the U.S. side of the border, you're going to have supply on the Mexican side. And that supply brings with it, you know, the most extraordinary violence, what's effectively a shadow civil war as different paramilitaries battle for control of different parts of Mexico. And Juarez is the most lucrative corridor. And as a result, in the early 1990s, the Sinaloa cartel, later associated with El Chapo, basically moved in and took over and began this civil war in Juarez where the population the local population became fair game. And so some people we've spoken to have associated the murders of women, the sexualized murders of women in Juarez, in light of war crimes, in light of Bosnia, in light of you know, rape for, for, for the population, for the, for the purpose of the domination and subjugation of a population. So that, that was very fascinating to me, thinking about how the huge demand for drugs in, in the US powers cartel violence in Mexico. Of course, not only that, the guns going from north to south, um, an Obama administration uh, enterprise called Operation Fast and Furious was designed to send guns south of the border and track their movements uh, to see you know who might be who might be illicitly purchasing weapons. Of course, the majority of the weapons got lost uh, and are now used to fuel violence. Um, 
The other connection to the US, though, is the manufacturing industry. And that's something that Monica has studied much more deeply than I have. So I'll, I'll, I'll toss over to you, my, my dear co-host. Okay, I see. Well, yes, the second engine that fuels the Juarez economy is um, is manufacturing. And manufacturing came into play um, in the late 60s after World War II, um, there were the the U.S. brought in um, hundreds of thousands of Mexican workers to take the place of of uh, U.S. workers who had gone off to war. When that program was done, Mexico and the U.S. were both interested. Well, what do we do now with all these Mexican workers that we're sending home? And uh, there was an enterprising uh, businessman in, in in Juarez who um, who created a program for the these returning workers um, in assembly in, in manufacturing plants. He invited companies to come to um, Mexico, set up uh, factories, and uh, and and employ workers at a cheaper rate than they were working in the U.S. Um, NAFTA. In 1994, only accelerated that process, um, and initially their um, their employees were primarily um, female because these companies had the idea that oh, women are more docile and nimble fingered, so they'll make excellent um, factory workers, and so that's what drew many many women and many families to Juarez, and many of these female factory workers were among the femicide victims in Juarez. And these manufacturing plants are still operating in, in Juarez today. Um, the workers there earn um, roughly $10 a day, not per hour, per day. And these are among the essential workers that are providing us with um, things we use every day, um, including you know appliances in our home and supplies in our hospitals. You launched the podcast back in June. What's the response been like since then? Have women in Juarez been listening at all? Do you know? Well, I mean, we've gotten, thankfully, a very positive response. You know, last we checked, we had uh, 1.5 million downloads to the podcast. And among those listeners are are people from the U.S.-Mexico border, from Juarez and El Paso. And it's especially um, gratifying to hear when they reach out and say, my wife is from Juarez, or I grew up in Juarez and went to school in El Paso. And and I'm so glad somebody is discussing this. Or I'd heard about the murders in Juarez, but never knew the whole story behind it. Thank you for telling the story. And yes, we did interview the niece of one of our main characters, one of the mothers who who lost a daughter. And uh, she was born in Juarez, comes to school in El Paso, speaks uh, perfect English and uh, and is able to listen and understand the, the podcast. And she was telling us how she was learning things about her aunt who had been murdered um, that she hadn't that she hadn't known about herself and um, and had good things to say about the podcast, which, you know, I, I don't think you can get a, a higher compliment than than that. Monica, Oz, thank you both so much for joining us today. Where can people listen to your podcast? Um, much like your podcast, they can listen to it on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever they get their podcasts. <laughs> Very convenient. <laughs> Perfecto. That's it for today. Join us tomorrow when we take a look at how life inside the NBA's anti-coronavirus bubble is going as basketball season prepares to start back up. 
And remember, if you want our help in coordinating the seizure of George R.R. R. Martin, you can email us at news... Uh, uh, wait, legal is telling me that I cannot offer our help in the kidnapping, but good luck to all of you anyway. Oh boy. Be sure to subscribe to News O'Clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to set your alarm so you never miss an episode of News O'Clock. After 30 years, it's time to return to the halls of West Beverly High and hang out at the Peach Pit. On the podcast 9021OMG, visit Jenny Garth and Tori Spelling for a rewatch of the hit series Beverly Hills 90210 from the very beginning. We get to tell the fans all of the behind-the-scenes stories that actually happened. So they know what happened on camera, obviously, but we can tell them all the good stuff that happened off camera. Listen to 9021OMG on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Roxanne Gay, the host of the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. Each week I talk to an interesting person about feminism, race, writing in books and art, food, pop culture, and yes, politics. We can't escape politics. Listen to the Luminary Original Podcast, The Roxanne Gay Agenda, every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Conquer your New Year's resolutions with the Before Breakfast podcast. In each bite-sized daily episode, you'll learn how to make the most of your time with practical tools to help you feel less busy and get more done. Listen to Before Breakfast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.